Welcome back to The Word at Work. Uh, this is a series on the Old Testament book of Kings, uh, and this is talk number four. My name is Nathan Lovell. Today we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 8. So the temple has been built, and in today's story, we watch as all of Israel gathers together to pray and to dedicate it uh, and to celebrate God who promised to dwell amongst them. Uh, Solomon leads the prayers and takes the opportunity to look at how this whole thing got started and look forward to where it's going. Uh, as usual, you'll get more out of this if you go and read the, um, read the passage first. So feel free to pause the video, have a look at 1 Kings chapter 8 uh, and come back when you're ready. In many ways, this is the high point of the book of Kings. Uh, it's the theological heart of the book of Kings. The chapter opens with a scene that echoes the days of old when Moses used to gather all of Israel to um, hear God's word uh, around the Ark of the Covenant at the Tent of Meeting. Uh, one day after seven years of work, the temple is finished and there it stands. It's magnificent. It's golden. Uh, it's it's sitting on top of a mountain in Jerusalem. It's just spectacular. Uh, and Solomon gathers all of Israel around the temple uh, to hear God's word and to celebrate what God is doing amongst them. It doesn't matter where you are in Jerusalem. You would see the festivities. You would see the smoke billowing out from the altars. You would smell the offerings. Uh, it would have been a time of celebration and great, uh, great joy, like a, like a festival. Uh, but one thing remains, as we discovered in the last talk, actually the purpose of this temple is that God would dwell amongst his people. So God has to move in. And that's the first thing that we see going on in 1 Kings chapter 8. The symbol of God's presence is the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it's existed for a very long time by this point in the Bible. It was around, you'll, you'll remember, Moses constructed it as they came out of Egypt, and it's been around since then. It's always symbolized God's presence. Israel took it with them in, into battle to symbolize that God would be with them. Uh, they, they camped around the Ark of the Covenant as they traveled through the wilderness. Uh, it was the first thing, you'll recall, in the water when the people crossed the Jordan River and the waters parted uh, and they marched across. And they used to keep the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. And so now the priests gather together and transport the Ark of the Covenant to its final resting place in the Holy of Holies under the wings of the cherubim in the temple. And as they do, this human symbol of divine presence is met with a divine symbol of divine presence, the cloud uh, and the glory of the Lord uh, that we're used to from the story of the Exodus, the one that they followed around in the desert. Uh, the cloud descends on the temple and fills the temple, just like it had done once to the tabernacle uh, as well. And that's it. The temple is God's permanent dwelling place right there in the midst of his people, ready to be with them. Now, often when Christians think of the temple, we think of the rituals that are associated with it, like sacrifice and maybe washing and the priestly garments and all of those kind of things, the formal kind of symbolic parts of Israel's religion. And the temple has all of those things, it's true, but that's not actually the way 1 Kings 8 wants us to think about the temple. 
The temple is in fact highly relational in this chapter. For a start, the very existence of the temple is proof that God has been faithful and done what he said he would do. Solomon begins his dedication with a blessing. I'm looking at verse 15 here. Praise the Lord, he says, the God of Israel, who has kept the promise he made to my father David. Uh, you'll remember that God promised David that his son would come and build the temple. And here we are, God has fulfilled that promise. And so Solomon says, well, great. This temple is about the fulfillment of the promises that God has made. Uh, here's Solomon, the king that would come after David and the temple, the building that that king would build. And so two of the three things that God promised David have come true in this moment in 1 Kings 8. And so Solomon prays for the third one too, in verse 25. Now, O Lord, God of Israel, carry out the additional promise you made to your servant, David, my father. For you said to him, if your descendants guard their behavior and faithfully follow me as you have done, one of them will always sit on the throne of Israel. So God, you've done what you promised. Here we are. Now, keep that extra promise too, would you? And this is all part of the book's quest to find a true king who will rule in the line of David forever. Someone who will obey God's word and listen to God's voice and someone who will rule God's kingdom in a way that makes it actually look like God's kingdom with justice and righteousness and peace. Will Solomon be that king? Well, it hasn't started so well, has it? If you think back to the previous talks in the series, but maybe, maybe, who knows? Maybe he'll come good now. Let's keep reading. The second part of Solomon's prayer here outlines how the temple should be used. Uh, and it's mainly actually as a place of prayer in this chapter. It's the place where God can be found. So it's the place where Israel can go to pray to God. Uh, it's quite formulaic, you will have noticed as you read it. Solomon lists seven, I don't know, seven things that could happen. Uh, he's not being specific, he's just kind of listing you know, possibilities in a way that suggests it wouldn't matter what happened. Uh, but there are seven kind of historical contingencies. And Solomon says, well, when this happens and your people come to the temple and pray, God, would you do this? Would you hear in heaven and forgive your people if they've done something wrong and listen to what they've prayed in the temple? Uh, Solomon prays that when Israel need justice, they could come to the temple and pray to God there and he would give them justice. He prays that when they've been defeated by enemies, they could come to the temple and pray and God would restore them. He prays that, um, that Israel would be able to pray in the temple for rain in times of drought and that he would give them relief in the midst of famine. Uh, he prays that foreigners would be able to come to the temple and pray and find God in the temple. Uh, he prays that God would bring victory in warfare if, that, if Israel will pray to God in the temple for it. Uh, and he prays that Israel would for, find forgiveness of sin if they'll pray to God in the temple for it. Uh, and Solomon nails this problem, really. <laughs> this final petition of the seven, you know, historical contingencies, things that might happen. This final petition probably says it best. Verse 46, if your people sin against you, for there is no one who's never sinned, then you might become angry with them. There's no one who doesn't sin. 
The temple is this amazing place, symbolizing this whole new creative movement of God to dwell amongst his people and provide blessings uh, and security and peace for his people and life for his people. Uh, Solomon's prayer implies that Israel can find a way through virtually anything that might happen to them, through drought and famine and war and crisis and injustice and, you know, anything that might happen. Uh, if only they will humble themselves, come to the temple, seek God who lives there and pray. I wonder if they'll do it. Do you know how many times they actually do this in the book? You know, the funny thing about Solomon's prayer is that each of these things he prays, each of these contingencies actually happens in the book of Kings. There is a famine. There is a drought in the book of Kings. They are defeated by enemies in the book of Kings. Every single one of them happens. And do you know how many times Israel actually used this temple in the way that Solomon thinks they should? Just once. It's in 2 Kings 19. You can sneak a peek ahead if you want to. Uh, and this is really the problem that we were exploring last time in the temple. God is faithful, but people aren't. There's no one who doesn't sin. Uh, and the incredible thing about this temple is that, is that it means that God will be true. He will be true to his promise to dwell with us anyway. And somehow, in the end, it will still work out in spite of his people. But this temple's also about one other thing too, and it's quite important for the Book of Kings, and it's quite important for us as well. Right in the middle of the chapter, in verse 27, Solomon says, will God really live on earth? Will he really dwell in this temple? Why, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less than this temple that I have built? The truth is actually God doesn't dwell in the temple. How could he? How could the God who created the universe and the stars and the moon and all of the gold that Solomon used to build the temple in the first place, how could he actually dwell in a building the size of a basketball court? It's silly. There's this perpetual tension in Kings about the temple. On the one hand, it symbolizes God's presence in Israel amongst his people. And on the other hand, God is just too big for it. And he's too big for Israel. And this is important. He's too big even for Israel. As you read through Kings, you realize that God is always at work everywhere outside of Israel. He's in the home of the Syrophoenician woman when Elijah visits. Uh, and he provides flour uh, and oil in a time of drought for her, but she's not in Israel and she doesn't come to the temple. He's worshiped by the Syrian general Naaman in Damascus and he builds an altar there and worships God, but not in Israel and not at the temple. And one day when the great Assyrian empire, the most vast army the world has ever known, marches up to Jerusalem, the prophet Isaiah will confront them and say, hey, don't you know why you're here? You're here because 300 years ago, God started raising you up and giving you victories and providing you kings way over there in Assyria so that one day he could bring you here. That's why you're here. God's not the God of this temple. 
in the sense that he lives in it or is constrained by it. He's the God of everyone. And that's why the book of Kings actually makes sense if you stop and think about it. It's a book about history. It's about God's power over history and about how God's purposes for history just simply cannot be stopped. God will do what he promises no matter what happens, whether it's famine or drought or armies and battles or chaos and tumult. God has a purpose and he is sovereignly at work, the God of the heavens, to make it happen. Nothing is too big for God because God is too big for this temple. And that's still true today. God is above that's it for now. I'll see you next time. We'll be looking at 1 Kings chapters 9 and 10. Bye.